This is episode 17 of the Movie Maniacs podcast. I'm your host, Noah, and joining me once again is Patrick. I'm back. Yeah, we're back for uh, part three or lap three of our Mad Max retrospective. Um, And you should have just been listening to the um, Mad Max for your road soundtrack when you started this um, episode because all the other soundtracks suck in this retrospective. (laughs) So I did not put any of the other soundtracks. I did not want to put Tina Turner in front of this episode or the first album soundtrack. So I only went with Fury Road because that's the best soundtrack. We'll hold off thoughts on that movie, but I think that score is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, Patrick, I doubt that you've seen anything recently since we last talked, have you? Uh, nope. A few episodes of Toast of London, a little Arrested Development, a little Office, just some TV, and the next Mad Max. That's it. Yeah, all right. I did see one thing. I saw um, Doctor Strangelove, or how I um, okay, or how or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. Uh, I think I can solidify myself as a Stanley Kubrick fan now. I've only seen two of his movies, but both of them I've given a five star rating to. Um, uh, this is an awesome movie. It's um, very laughable. And yet it's shocking. Uh, the ending is what really solidified it for me. It's a five-star movie. Um, that ending is just, it, it, it's, it's just crazy. I won't say what it is, but that ending, man. Wow. Yeah, it's a good movie. Stanley Kubrick is a, a legend among men. Yeah, definitely. Um, so that's pretty much the only thing that I saw. So let's go ahead and, uh, get into Bad Max 3. If you've been tracking with us uh, through this retrospective, you'll know where Patrick and I stand with the Mad Max films. Um, so, anyway, uh, let's go ahead and get right into it. Um, inst- it. Instantly, yeah, instantly we start on a wrong note for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I don't listen to a lot of uh, Tina Turner songs, but um, this song did nothing for me. Um, I just fast forwarded through these opening credits um, and thank the Lord I did because I did not care a whole lot for this song. I liked it. I thought it was good. I liked Tina Turner's voice and I thought the production on the song was pretty solid. Uh, it definitely was a different feel than the first two, but I didn't have any problems with it. Yeah, I guess uh, Tina Turner, I'm not going to disrespect her as a singer. Uh, her just style of music isn't one that I like a whole lot. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, she did make my least favorite uh, opening James Bond song, though, in Quantum of Solace. Did not like that. Oh, I'm not a big James Bond aficionado, so I haven't seen that one. Um, so we go to this opening credits sequence, and then we start on another wrong note for me. Mad Max is riding a camel thingy, like a, oh, I'm blanking on what this is called. It's like a stagecoach, but it's got camels dragging in instead of horses. Yeah, we don't even start off with with really an opening action scene, which has been kind of what's been happening with these first few Mad Max films. Uh, We 
started off with the cops chasing uh, the Knight Rider in the first Mad Max film, and then the um, the main gang in uh, Mad Max Road Warrior uh, chasing after Max. Here, um, we have Bruce Spence, uh, his character, the Gyro Captain, awesome. attacking. Yeah, I did not see him coming. Uh, I did. I guess because I skipped through that opening credit scene, uh, those, that opening credit sequence, that I didn't really catch um, that he was in the movie. So this was a a pleasant surprise, but it doesn't make him like me very much. I I think that um, I said lot. I asked last time if the Gyro Captain was really going to be a responsible leader for the tribe last time, and it seems like he's not because he ditched them. Well, actually, I don't think that this character is the same as Gyro Captain. He's uh, he's credited as Jedediah. That's like oh, his okay. name, and it's, so it just says Jedediah and his son. So I I understand because I thought it was the Gyro Captain at first too. I really didn't even realize that it wasn't the Gyro Captain until like he first sees or Max first sees him and like doesn't recognize him, you know. And then I was like, wait a minute, maybe this is a different guy. But it's confusing because he's also in like a, a plane this time. So he's kind of still the aerial pilot type guy. Yeah, I, I never once questioned it. I mean, I just assumed he's in a plane. He ha- It's not the same hat, but he's got a weird hat. Um, yeah, same and Yeah. Yeah, I was just like, well, this is him. And he seems just as mischievous um, as the Gyro Captain. So, oh, okay. Well, I did not know that. Uh, and um, we f- we definitely know that it's Mad Max um, in this first bit until he removes his cloak. Um, and we get the reveal that Mel Gibson is wearing a bad wig. <laughs> is it that bad? This, um, I think it is. <laughs> I really don't off this week on one hand it makes sense but i don't i still don't really like it uh, he he wore a similar wig and braveheart and i didn't like that either um but and later down in the movie they'll shave it off and i breathe a sigh of relief <laughs> yeah it's kind of like how he starts out in fury road with a bunch of hair too yeah oh yeah you're right um and uh, then we switch over to the town. I believe it's the Barter Town. Yeah, Barter Town. Um, as they're going through this town and we're seeing the villages and stuff, um, it, it, I really got a Planet of the Apes vibe with the movie. Just how the film looked with the village and stuff. Uh, like the I don't know if you... Planet of the Apes? Uh, yeah, like that. Uh, just... The way the apes' houses are formed is similar to those, um, to these here. Um, so I was definitely getting a Planet of the Apes um, vibe from this. Um, and yet, at the same time, I think we need to address the elephant in the room, and that is the PG-13 rating. Uh, so, Patrick, how do you feel about uh, the PG-13 rating? Um. Well, I think the PG-13 rating depends on, like, 
what's actually in the movie, like whether it's a factor or not, whether it really matters. And honestly, I didn't really notice much of a difference as far as like con- content um, from this one compared to the any of the others. So I don't really care that it's PG-13, I guess. It's not like they were cutting back significantly on the, the violence. Like on the first two, it's really not that bloody at all and like fury road is a little more but i don't know i think it kind of all evened out i don't really think it affected it very much i'm going to have to disagree with you on that one i think the pg-13 rating greatly affects this movie i will agree with you that um the first two mad max films weren't just really heavy in violence, but I do think that uh, not a single drop of blood really falls um, in this entire movie. And I don't know, I think that one of the things that I just enjoy about the, just the world of Mad Max is the, is the, just the gore. I mean, that this is a crazy world and people kill each other. Yeah, I mean, there's death, though. Like, I guess, are you just saying that the lack of blood was what it was annoying? You know, I even feel like there's not a ton of deaths. I think the biggest one we get is the big baby face dude um, in the... um, Blaster? uh, What's it called? In the Thunderdome, and then a kid... What's that? Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, and then the little kid um, who will fall in the sand, uh, the sand trap later on, yeah. quicksand. Um, but I really feel like um, okay. So one of the main writers who had been um, with th- this franchise for a while um, uh, died uh, before this movie, and they brought in a, a different writer to uh, help out with the movie. And I sort of, okay, I'm just going to put it out there. This is a, for me, a very flawed movie. Uh, I think it's going to be the, end up being the weakest of the Mad Max franchise. And there is a, I'm not going to put those blames on George Miller because this movie had a ton of studio interference because they were aiming at a younger audience. So what do you think was changed in the writer's table that uh, it makes this different than any other Mad Max movie? I don't know the name of the writer that they brought in, but I'm, I think that this writer added a more toned down vision of this world. I mean, just with the setting, everything feels more civilized. Uh, I think that what this writer thinks is that if um, people look weird or laugh a lot, that makes them crazy, which isn't exactly true. I think there's more to it than that. And just with, uh, like, my, my, the prime example being the Knight Rider, I think that the Knight Rider, um, I think that, like, he does, like, he's the prime example of, like, I guess, crazy that I look at in this franchise so far. 
uh, just with him like spouting dialogue that you don't really understand and things like that. Here, uh, Max comes across a a character um, riding a, a caravan or whatever, and the guy just laughs. And I feel like the writer intended for us to think, "Wow, this guy's crazy." But really, I, I don't get that out of the movie as much. I mean, if we look back at our uh, Mad Max One review, there was definitely a lot of um, just people inanely laughing and that kind of stuff, especially with Toker's gang. Yeah. And so I see what you mean by that, but mm. I think in this movie, the focus wasn't quite as much on how insane these individual characters can be, and it was more focused on how insane the world could get. Yeah, I, I guess so, but even when we, I mean, the whole, just how this town works with the, um, like, this has, like, an electricity-run town, and after uh, Mad Max, uh, the Road Warrior, we didn't really get that. I mean, we both agree that now, um, in that review, that uh, this, the whole world was just much more desolate, and, you know, we had that opening um, narration in the beginning about how the world got so mad and I think just in how the world got so um, just deserted and I actually think that that um, narration takes place in between Mad Max 1 and Mad Max 2 because in Mad Max 1 we saw those forests and towns still up uh, but in Mad Max 2, I mean, we barely ever, we, we barely see a town. I mean, the biggest town, quote-unquote, that we see is um, that uh, place with all the fuel and oil. Yeah. Uh, but after this um, walking through, uh, what, why does Max go to this town? I did not catch why. Um, I think he goes to find out information on the person that robbed him. Because that's what he's asking. Oh, really? Because that's what okay. he was asking yeah, about I didn't catch in the, the lineup or whatever. And they were like, we don't have anything oh, to trade yeah. for this information. And he was like, well, I'll trade my skills or whatever. And then that's when he gets hired to okay. kill the dude. Oh, yeah, I right. see what you're saying um, about like how this has more of a civilized atmosphere just because there's two um main groups that are trying to set up a society there's the the kids society which is more of a primitive tribe than a a real society and then there's and then there's the main thunderdome society which while it is a society the rules and the way that the society is set up are very primitive there's lots of slavery going on there's um, the laws and the penalties are often based on chance or, you know, obviously in the Thunderdome, like hand to hand, you know, conflict is like a, it's like a gladiatorial yeah. sport like in Rome, you know. So this the civilization is trying to get itself set back up again, but there's not really much hope mm-hmm. because they're still stuck in the um, the same pitfalls that our civilization had when it was first trying to get up off the ground. Yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, Tina Turner's character' main goal. Her main goal is to have a civilized town and stuff. She's constantly trying to keep peace amongst yeah. here. But um, let's talk about uh, Tina Turner's character. Um, 
auntie entity entity. Um, what did you think of um this villain? Because, well, really, actually, is she a villain? I don't know. Well, yeah, the the villain roles here aren't quite as clear cut because originally you think that she's the hero of this town that's trying to get it set up the right way, but then eventually mm-hmm. you realize that she's just as brutal as um this master blaster guy and she just wants the power. Yeah. So I think that's kind mm-hmm. of, you know, an interesting thing that they do, which is it's not just some, you know, crazy dude that for whatever reason is uh trying to kill a bunch of people and steal everything. It's more of a um just people being selfish, you know, people wanting power and being hungry for whatever kind of uh leadership they can um attain for themselves at the expense of others. And I think that's just kind of a little more interesting as far as villain roles go. I also think Tina Turner's performance is more interesting than um Humongous's was in The Road Warrior even though I think Humongous looks way cooler. Um yeah. So, yeah, that's what I think about her. Um I don't like Tina Turner in this movie. Um I like I said I will not disrespect her as a singer. She's obviously a very uh popular singer, but I will disrespect her acting <laughs> in this movie. I will agree with you. Like, I guess as a character, she's better than the humongous was. But what she does overall, I think we've always said that when this movie tries to be, well, when this franchise tries to be really smart or have, you know, character moments that they don't always work. And I feel like this movie still falls into that trap. I think that some of the writing is trying to be a little smarter. I'm not going to say it necessarily succeeds. Um, but when, like, when we were going into this, like, she seems to be, like, really, you know, calm and nice, and I, I was like, you know, I guess I just walked in, I was thinking, like, you know, I guess I just walked in here thinking that she would be the, the main antagonist, but she may not be, and, you know, then we're introduced to, um, the, uh, the master and blaster, um, yeah. And I, I thought the master looked a whole lot like Martin Scorsese, <laughs> which I don't know why I went to that, but he was short, and I thought his hair was like it. But anyway, I was like, oh, well, maybe they'll be the main antagonist. I don't know. Um, but Max is hired to um, kill um, the master and the baster. Well, he's hired um, to kill the blaster. Sort of blaster, yeah. Because Blaster's essentially the muscle, and uh, the master is the brain. Yeah, and a key point of this plot is that Blaster has his head covered with this, like, helmet. So it's all of the master controlling him, and mm-hmm. uh, it's you, it's just Blaster's strength that is valuable here. Or that's how it's set up, at least. Yeah, and, and he's really... The master is essentially just a... Um, cruel uh, slave master, I guess. I mean, that's essentially all he does, right? And, or, well, I well, guess he's he gener- sort of tries to... Sorry, you go. Um, I, well, I guess he's also sort of fighting for power um, against um, 
um, ant, ant, anti-entity, um, anti-entity, whatever. Um, Tina, I'm just going to call her Tina Turner. But yeah. um, trying to take uh, the power away from Tina Turner, and he sort of uses the electricity to his advantage and stuff. I, I'm not going to say he's a like a really flawless character, but I never... I was still skeptical about Tina Turner because I never saw the master and the bastard being a, uh, a the main antagonist. So just just never saw it that way. I didn't think that they had. You cut out for a second. The, what did you not see the master and the blaster as? Oh, I just said that I didn't think that the master and blaster just sort of had that. Um, I guess commanding villain role. They they felt more like thugs. Right. So. The way the story is set up, Master and Blaster, they're not really the villains here. And yeah. um, Anti kind of pretty much is at, at the end. Um, yes. But the reason that Anti is against Master and Blaster is because Master and Blaster have control of the uh, methane uh, farm that they're, uh, they keep pigs and they farm the methane from their poop. Yes. So yeah, that's yeah. that's basically the the strongest part of the economy of um uh what's it called Barter Town. So mm-hmm. while Auntie has kind of a figurehead control role, the real power lies with Master and Blaster because they control the biggest um economic resource of this society so far. Yeah. So that is why she sees them as such a threat, and that's why they are such a threat, because in this world, resources equal power. I agree. We were talking about last time how, like, fuel is sort of the money of um, this world, and that rule still sort of applies here. But um, I have a question for you, Patrick. I thought in that opening um, credit scene um, in the last movie that it said that, like, almost all the animals were, like, killed or, like, destroyed by this supposed nuclear blast or how this place became so desolate. Is Does that rule still apply here? Are they retconning it? Or is it line drop that they were ma- they managed to find all these pigs? Um, I don't remember them saying that the, most of the animals were wiped out, but even if most of them were, uh, you know, if they find a male and a female pig, that's a start. Okay, yeah. Um, and so, um, um, Max is sort of placed in here as like a mole. Um, is that what he is here to do? Um, he is hired as an assassin to kill Blaster. Is that what you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. But pretty much, yeah. I refer to him as a mole, but I think that you made a stronger point. He is sent here as an assassin. Yeah, so he's hired to kill Blaster, but they want him to do it legally so that there's no um, no way they can trace it back to Auntie and uh, challenge her her claim to power once Blaster is not there to protect Master. Yeah, through the Thunderdome. Exactly. Okay, we also see Max's car, um, which I guess it must be built or something. Um, I don't really care. I'm just glad it's back. But by the end, he still doesn't get the car. Like, it's almost like the car makes a cameo. Like, I don't feel like I, he never gets the car back. When did we really see the car? Out by that. 
I don't remember that. Well, I feel one of the engineers is working on um, a car, and he doesn't know how to fix it. And um, um, Max jumps in and says he can fix it, and the master says, how do you think you could fix it? And he says, well, it's my car. And Oh, I'm, are you talking about the, the self-destruct thing on the – I think that was his, um, his thing that he was get, having pulled by the camels. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, I, think... I thought it... Look, when we're down here with all these pigs, this movie is not lit very well. I can't make out a lot of our surroundings. Um, yeah. But, so... I don't know, I thought the, the vehicle in question had the physique of Max's car, but we never really even get a look, good look at the stagecoach, so I, I wasn't really for certain. Yeah, so basically, like, in the uh, the Road Warrior, Max rigs his car to self-destruct, and that destroys it mm-hmm. in that movie. And so he's rigged yes. his uh, stagecoach the same way. But you're okay. right, we only really see the engine of it, but I just assumed it was the same stagecoach because we also saw his camels being auctioned off at Bartertown earlier. So all the stuff yeah, that was captured that. was delivered there and is getting sold. What's that? I said all his stuff that was uh, that was stolen from him is has gotten delivered to Barter Town and is being sold off. Okay, all right. Yeah, like I said, I feel like when we're down there at the pigs, this movie's really hard to make out. So I couldn't quite catch the physique of the car, um, but um, the uh, master and blaster have an have an exchange sort of with Tina Turner when he's controlling the electric and stuff, um, and then um, later Max challenges um, uh, Tina. No, Max challenges um, the master and the blaster. Uh, well, pretty much the blaster to. Um, fight in the Thunderdome. Now, I think one of the most famous things about this movie is that iconic line, two men enter, one man leaves. Yeah. Um, so, I had known about this coming in. I, w- I was really excited. Um, but, okay, when we get to the Thunderdome, I see them being tied up to bungee cords and I'm confused about what okay I'm not alright let me rephrase that I am not necessarily confused I am just confounded that why would this be the way to go Look, I'm a huge fan of the idea of the gladiator the, the movie the gladiator is one of my favorite movies um, and so I was really excited Matt, to, for Mad Max to be uh, fighting against the um, the blaster. Like, I thought it would be really cool. Maybe they tied them up to bungee cords, and this is when, like, oh, I really felt they were going for the little nine-year-olds and ten-year-olds in the audience because this is like, wow, they're on bungee cords. Isn't this fun, kids? Yeah, I see where you're coming from. I mean, I thought there were parts of the fight that came across as kind of cheesy, but it feels comical. I mean, I think, yeah, I think the uh, the whole idea of the Thunderdome is that you can do this there. That's why it's the you know the dome is important is because they're using the entire 
you know, spherical space inside the dome mm-hmm. to fight, not just fighting on the ground. Yeah. So I, I get the intention and the idea, but I think the execution here, and this is like the 80s, right? What's that? This was the 80s when this movie came out, correct? Yeah, that's 1985. Yeah, so I think just the execution of this idea here is kind of what makes it laughable, but I understand the 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 reasoning behind it, definitely. Yeah, it, it's it been really cool. lackluster. Yeah, it definitely could have been cool. And I, yeah, I was really excited. I was like, I thought one of the key things in this movie was like a bunch of uh, battle arenas. Like, I thought Max was going to become like the gladiator and uh, he's going to become Russell Crowe and the gladiator and like be captured and be forced to fight this arena. And I was like, really excited. Like, oh, this could get good. And then, like, I don't know, just bouncing around on bungee cords wasn't what I had in mind. I could see. Uh, your point, Patrick, that this could this can be entertaining, but I mean the end of the fight when Max knocks off the blaster's helmet, and oh no, it is the face of a child. I didn't really. Um, I don't know. I just did not feel like this was a very good way to end um, the Thunderdome fight. And I really felt that it was just, um, I felt really kiddish and silly. And that's not what I've come to expect to these Mad Max films. The audience isn't as crazy as I thought they would. We get this really weird speech and before the Thunderdome fight um, by this weird priest, which I thought was really, really corny, and I didn't like it. And I don't know, this whole... Thunderdome fight, it just blew for me. Well, I think I think the whole concept of the Thunderdome fight is interesting because, like you were saying, there's this priest that gives the speech at the beginning, and he's basically laying out the reason that this society has created the Thunderdome, and mm-hmm. it's the fact that they have realized that, you know, when there's violent conflict between people, a lot of times it gets out of hand, and it, you know, leads to more death than is necessary and in this post-apocalyptic world lives are really important because there aren't as many of them you know like when you have fewer of something it becomes more valuable so they but they but it's twisted and it's it's kind of an insane concept in a way because the the thunderdome is basically just trying to get the level of death down to the lowest um common denominator you know that's the whole two men enter, one man, one man leaves. It's basically, they're trying to minimize the amount of death that occurs. But in the same way, throughout the fight, you see that this is not really what happens. Like the blaster throws a spear, um, Max dodges it, and then it hits someone outside yeah. the arena and kills them, assumingly. Mm-hmm. So right there, you know, you see that this society is not really um, setting out or not accomplishing what it states that it is. Another reason why it's not really accomplishing this is in the reveal of Blaster at the end when they take his helmet off and he's this mentally challenged man, you realize that the whole idea of two men enter, one man leaves is way too narrow of a judgment for these people, right? Because 
Max, you know, is a man, and then Blaster is a man, but they're not in the same. They they shouldn't be competing in this way because they're not, you know, the same. Uh, they they're just not a match for each other, and it's not justice. And this is this is compounded even further when, you know, do uh, they want to let Max out because he's the one that lives? But Auntie basically just pulls out another rule that says he broke the agreement. He needs to, you know, be judged based off mm-hmm. the wheel. And the wheel is just like a bunch of punishments and you spin it and whichever one lands on, that's what you get. It's like, there's no real law and order here. It's just, they're leaving things up to chance. They're leaving things up to arbitrary competitions and things that don't really um, bring any sense of justice or uh, closure to any of these conflicts, and that's why I that's why I liked it. But there were definitely parts of it, like um, the bungee cords, didn't really pan out very well. Yeah. Sorry, you you cut off there for a second. Uh, what was the last thing I said? Um, I think you're talking about, yes, some parts are, and then you cut off. Yeah, I was just saying that, like, the bungee cord, you know, doesn't really, isn't really executed as well as it could have been, mm-hmm. but the rest of the, the, all the ideas behind it, like, the creative part of it, uh, I think is there. Yeah, you talked about that, um, the wheel, that was dumb, like, I felt like that was yet another, like, thing that like a like a kid would come up with like I don't I just don't know like it really did not feel like what I've come to expect in this world and then it lands on some word that I did not understand and so I'm like what is going to happen to him and he is put on a horse and put a funny hat on and is whipped off like there he goes off to the desert I don't know I just felt like from I see what um, the writers are trying to go for here with depicting this somewhat civilized world, but yet the rules are still um, just really messed up. Like when we in the first Mad Max movie, when Johnny the Boy goes to trial and um, he's he's set free because like I don't know, I think the judges didn't show up or something like that, and you see that the court system is also messed up. Uh, we I, I can see that they're kind of um. De- expanding on that but the idea of this punishment just by putting a silly hat on him and running with like on one hand i see like yeah max could die with in the desert and stuff but i feel like what you know like this tina turner is not menacing i think whether she's a a good or bad villain can we agree that she's not a very menacing character I don't think she's menacing as a character. I think she's menacing in that uh, she represents this society that is really insidious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Yeah, but you know, even with the um, the humongous, I felt like while that character himself was not very well written. I feel like he still, I mean, he had a, he was a big guy. Like, he had muscles, and I felt like he he still had a bit of menace to him. 
And you even had that uh, weird gun, the, the the fancy gun we didn't talk about. That was apparently really dangerous. It almost wins Max in that movie. Um, but, you know, I I still feel like she doesn't display a lot of menace and is the least menacing character. Even when we had, you know, Toe Cutter, who's really just a like a like a punk character. Um, but then, okay, Max is cast out and he gets saved by this tribe. Okay. Yeah, real quick before we go on to the tribe, I think that uh, another part of Tina Turner's character mm-hmm. that isn't menacing, but it's uh, interesting. Well, it is kind of menacing, and it's just interesting to consider. Uh, when we first meet her, she tells basically how, you know, she asked Max who he was before all this, and she tells him that she was nobody. Oh, yeah. And then she says, until the day after where she was somebody who survived and that was the difference between her and a lot of other people and she has so she's basically an example of someone who has gone from you know being the one of the lowest members of a society to this catastrophic event happening and then she this event has ignited in her some kind of um more primal survival uh instinct that has led her to build something that is really impressive for mm-hmm. this world, but is also really dangerous and not um, overall productive because nobody here is really um, happy in this society. They're still yeah. just surviving. And, but she has, you know, she has taken the survival uh, method and she is also... Um, pretty selfish because she wants to put herself as the the leader for whatever reason and she is mm-hmm. not willing to share um the spoils basically that come with being the leader i agree yeah i did li- i will agree with you i did like that um that point uh that she which was we don't really get any of that with toe cutter or humongous they're just kind of there mm-hmm. and humongous or toe cutter is kind of crazy which is menacing and then Humongous is kind of big, but Humongous's voice, jeez, oh, yeah. <laughs> so bad. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think they kind of even out. Yeah, I, I will agree. I'm not jiving with the Tina Turner character, but I will say that I did like that point. It showed what this post-apocalyptic world has either helped some people or um, have helped some people, like. Some people have benefited and some people have not. Um, like the um, the master, uh, he um, is like a like pretty much a midget, and like in the modern world, he might be laughed at, but here he's the commander of slaves and using his brains and commanding this big guy to get uh, what he wants and stuff. Um, yeah. So I did like that's, that. That's another. That's another interesting thing is that like. You know, the ma- with Master and Blaster, you got Master, who's a midget, and who would be laughed at and treated as a freak in today's society. And then you got Blaster, who's mentally challenged, and he would also not be, you know, thriving in today's society. They're, you know, they're often treated as outcasts and, you know, what have you. Yeah. Which... I thought it was interesting because in the first Mad Max, there's also a mentally challenged character. So this is kind of a a recurring thing with George Miller that he keeps 
uh, dropping into his movies. I'm I'm not sure if he has like a personal um, experience with this or something. It's someone in his life or whatever. But um, it's cool. Master and Blaster are cool to me. How they they combine, um, they they they, you know, to Tina Turner's character says how they're basically one person. Yeah. Because they bonded together, um, probably through their outcast nature, and they've become something that's powerful enough to command, uh, you know, an entire economical um, uh, um, powerhouse, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, we're in the middle of our Batman retrospective, and we'll get to the Dark Knight Rises. But I think there's almost an element in that movie that is similar to this one, just about how the weaker denominator um, can rise up and just the rich will feel they'll be useless in this world. Like, I feel like, you know, if the about all the rich people before um, this post this post apocalyptic world, they're probably like not thriving. Like they're the weakest ones because I mean, they don't. Well, yeah, money doesn't matter when all you need is fuel yeah. and water. And I think they're probably the ones who are doing the least well when, you know, the lower, the least amount of money you have, the more you're used to, you know, living on the streets and stuff and having to do more things with your hands. Um, and that, that element's awesome, The Dark Knight Rises, which, I don't know, I kind of put this two together. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Um, but we get to... Um, the, the tribe. Um, okay. I do want to point out one thing before we get to the tribe. No one has rode a car in this movie. Yeah, that's a big yes, problem Yes, it is. And we haven't gotten, like, a good explosion or anything. I'm really missing that element. Um, and there's also, um, the monkey character... And we talked about um, the dog last time. I think you and I both liked the dog. I know I certainly did. Um, yeah, yeah, I think we thought the dog was awesome. Um, uh, but here, uh, he's got the monkey. And while I get that a monkey can be helpful in some ways, I feel like the dog is way better uh, just because of, like, how the dog can like attack people in like a vicious way, but I want to. I I get all monkeys can be clever. I just want to point out there that I still prefer the dog, e- even though like I'm gonna point out there for our listeners that my nickname by my parents is the Monkey Man, so I have a special connection with monkeys. <laughs> but here, I still feel like if I had a choice between wandering through this post-apocalyptic world and I had to choose between a dog and a monkey as my companion that I would um, choose the dog. Yeah, the dog's a <laughs> yeah. anyway. And he's much more vicious. Like, he does a lot more than the monkey. Uh, and the monkey gives... Yeah, the monkey just kind of shows up a few times. The monkey's important, though. Let's let's get to the, the, the village. And the, yeah, so the, the monkey kids. brings Max... Um, though I still feel like the monkey does something less helpful, because... Well, Max gets a sip of water, and it probably is what keeps him surviving this long enough. He still, like, blacks out, and the, the tribe is probably what really helps him. But, yeah, I will agree with you. The monkey does, like, grab things and stuff, and he proves his 
worth um his worthness i think and um uh bringing the water yeah so um you know max blacks out he's captured by these kids or he's taken by these kids at least and then what happens next okay so wait are you talking are we still talking about the monkey because all right are we still talking okay good okay no. so max is brought to um, this this trial and okay I don't know if you got this Patrick because my mind we got Bruce Spence coming back at this point I still think he's the gyro captain the gyro master whatever and I haven't put together that he's um, some other different character um, but I'm thinking yeah I feel like I don't know if I just dreamed this or whatever but I thought I saw a kid carrying a boomerang. And I was like, oh, are we coming back to the people from the last movie? And I'm like, how the mighty have fallen? They can't speak English. They don't have cars. They barely are fully dressed. And I'm just like filling in the gaps here. But eventually, like, I'm like, no, those people, while they couldn't do much, were at least had some level of intelligence. But these Five members, Patrick, good lord. I mean, I don't know what you thought of this, but here I'm like, wow, we are just really aiming at that kid audience. I mean, nearly all 50% of the people in this tribe are kids. I was like, whoa, I mean, I, I, okay, so let's talk about Mel Gibson for a second in this movie. How did you think his performance was in the movie? Um, I thought he's improved pretty steadily throughout this series, so I think he's kind of. I think he's in his own, but when he is sitting there with those kids, um, and he is just looking around and stuff, I'm like, wow, Mel Gibson. I pity you. I mean, like, he's not doing as much action stuff. Like we mentioned, he doesn't get to drive a car. I'm just like, wow. I mean, I just felt so sorry for him. He felt, it's like the the parent going back to first grade and sitting in the little school um, chair. And I'm like, just, wow. I mean, this... Look, I knew this movie had a PG-13 rating, but I thought it would be a hard PG-13, like a, The Dark Knight or, um, what, what's it, uh, The Winter Soldier even, I mean, because that has some pretty violent action, but, I mean, this is just, I'm, I, I honestly, I was like, is this movie PG-13 or PG, because I don't know. It's PG-13. Yeah, I know, but th- that's what, I knew it was PG-13, but that's why I was like, this movie felt PG at times. I mean, just when he's sitting with, there with the tribe. But what did you think of this tribe, uh, Patrick? Well, I thought it was really cool. The tribe, um, this tribe of kids basically has been surviving here, and they're they're waiting for something. They're waiting for a coming figure, and they call this guy the... Um, the the walker is that what they call him like 
Captain Walker. I, I think, think so, yes. And so basically, yeah, basically the story that they've grown up with is that there was this captain or this, you know, this uh, airline pilot mm-hmm. that takes a plane full of people when the apocalypse is happening and they survive in the air for a while before they crash. And then the adults basically, or at least the captain and, you know, some of whoever was on there, I'm not really, the details are fuzzy because they're recounting it after so many years and their English isn't as great yes. anymore. But the the Captain Walker, at least, leaves them behind and says, wait here, I'll return. And then he goes off to basically try and find a way to, you know, a good city that still has Mm. survived. But he has not come back. And they they've captured Max or, you know, saved him, whatever they whatever you want to call it, because they believe that he is this Captain Walker returns. Which makes me think that they have, most of these kids, probably all of them actually, have generally grown up not ever having seen Captain Walker. Which means this is at least one or two generations removed from the actual events of the apocalypse. Or maybe just all the adults left or died off and they, you know, the kids didn't really remember mm-hmm. Captain Walker very well. So... So they're going, they're basically surviving on just hope and belief that this guy will return. And so when Max shows up and they have this painting of Captain Walker and Max looks like Captain Walker. So it's like, so it's like based on the wall painting, you know, it makes sense that they would think that it's him. And there's also a monkey on the wall with Captain Walker. So when the monkey shows up, that's like, that basically confirms it for them. Yeah. So I, so I thought it was cool because it was a it was a really interesting discussion on the the power of stories and the importance of storytellers, but also the potential dangers of you know telling something someone someone something that is going to give them hope when that hope is not necessarily going to be fulfilled and that's what max tries to protect them from by telling them the truth that he's not captain walker and you know there is no um, city left that they can return to everything is a wasteland and you know their best bet is just to survive where they are and get used to it but they don't want to live like that they've they've been surviving on this hope so long that they can't let go of it so I thought okay it was- i will agree with you on some points I did think that him um, having it breaking it to those to these people that um, uh, what is it that their captain either what you said he's dead right or he isn't him he isn't him well he hasn't he hasn't come back yeah it's not Max they they're wrong okay. about that I did like that element. Um, but for me, the best thing that comes out of this is that um, Gibson lose that rid- that loses that ridiculous wig. <laughs> I just really, I mean, look, when this nuclear explosion, I still think it's ambiguous, really, what happened. It's unclear, but we know bits and pieces of it. Um, but never when this happened did people become dumber? I mean, I'm getting huge 
I want to get Planet of the Apes flashbacks because in uh, that that original movie, um, the humans are uh, like really dumb in that movie because of some sort of disease that is made human intelligible. Um, but here, there's no exposition dropped on why they're behaving this way. I mean, I feel like even well, they're all kids. They're all kids, and they've grown up mostly without adults around. So when you're living in a society where no one has a fully formed prefrontal cortex because they're all under 18, like, they're not they, – they have not grown up with learning, you know, reading and writing. They don't have movies. They don't have books. They don't have anything to teach them this kind of stuff. So it is kind of understandable. And it's not that they're unintelligent. It's just that the way they're talking is – um foreign to us because they've basically been developing their own dialect that uh focuses more on things that they value more which we don't value those same things oh they're unintelligent let me put it on the table these people are not smart (laughs) what do they do that's not intelligent problem with no, they they can't complete sentences and stuff. I, I think you've made your point, and I, I agree. They may have been torn away from their parents at a young age and not have been able to understand the full English alphabet, but I still feel like some of the elements when he is like, you know, I'm not Captain Walker or whatever, like, they take it in this weirdest way, and, like, I still feel like, Look, I am just missing this crazy. I don't. I just. I. I lost all. What is it? Um, I just blanked out when this happened. Like I was just over it. Like I couldn't believe that this is where we were going. I mean, on one hand, yes, what this movie is going for is interesting. I'll give you that. The, the points you've made with uh, Tina Turner being nobody before this. Um, nuclear event and um, um, these people being torn away from their homes, not being as smart. I get it. But when I walk... They are as smart. I never said oh, no, they weren't no, as smart. That's well, not said. being able to speak English. Sorry, let me rephrase that. No, not speaking full English. Yeah, sorry. I, I, I said that wrong. Um, but uh, yeah, I good. still am like when I walk into a Mad Max movie, I'm wanting to see crazy road battles. And let me point out again that no one has gotten in a car this entire movie. This barely feels like a Mad Max movie. Besides, we have Bruce Spence returning in a role that I still don't really understand, but he's fun in it. And Mel Gibson. I don't get any other Mad Max element in this movie. I, do, I just do not see it. And I really feel sorry for Miller because he well, has a distinct vision, but the studio is wanting to make a... Uh, the, the studio executives are wanting to make a movie aimed at a younger audience. I'm not going to say specifically at kids, but at a PG-13 audience. And it is not working for me because I don't think the studio executives understood that the Mad Max franchise is not meant for a PG-13 rating, whether the R was hard or if it was a light R. It was still had it still had R elements that 
sort of made the franchise into this action-packed, I mean, bloody, insane world. And here we're, I mean, talking about Captain Walker and visiting planes and stuff, dealing with these tribe people, and that's not what I want from a Mad Max movie. Well, I think the problem with the first two Mad Max movies, which we did state in the reviews, is that whenever they tried to sit down Mm -hmm. and talk about anything, there was really nothing valuable that they were discussing. The acting was bad and the writing was poor. And while, yeah, there were more people getting shot in the face, I feel like the ideas in this movie are like a kick in the head to people who have been watching this series and not really making any of the connections between the ideas of an apocalyptic, a post-apocalyptic society, which, you know, the first one, it's like, it says, you know, a, a few years from now. So what Miller is trying to say with this series is that there are serious problems with society now. And that's part of why the first, um, Mad Max works um, on this Absolutely. level a little bit because that society is um, mm-hmm. still closer to ours. So it's easier to point to, you know, places in our society that are similar that aren't working as well. Like when Johnny is set free because the justice system, you know, doesn't have enough evidence, they say, this guy, we can't convict him with what we got. So he's got to be set free based on the law. And the police are saying, no, we're trying to get justice done here. We know it's him. Like, you got to let us do our jobs. And that's something that's, you know, in debate today. There's lots of problems that people have with the justice system. And people have also lots of problems with police, too. And so that is definitely like a, a good concept that the first one dealt with, although it was dealing with it mostly based on plot. And that's what this third movie is also doing. They're using the plot to discuss a lot of things that, you know, the idea of an apocalypse um, brings up a lot of these ideas and emotions and concepts about society. So, I mean, I think that this does follow a Mad Max formula. It's just following a it's it's um, focusing on a different side of the. Uh, mythology that was kind of missing from the road warrior but was replaced in the road warrior by lot plenty of yeah I, I agree i think you've hit the nail on the head especially with um um everything that's going on right now and i feel like these movies are even beyond their time like i feel like even here there are some elements that are closer to what's happening right now than what was happening back in 1979 i mean you can look at the O.J. case as a um, example of Johnny the Boy, um, and with corrupt cops, especially with what's going on right now, and with protests and all all that stuff. Um, but you can, I definitely think that you point out some good points. But I mean, I still think that you were right. Those first two Mad Max films story was a bit of a problem there. I'm not going to ding the Road Warrior too much on its script. I think that when they try to do character moments, it fails. But I don't think at overall the story has to be as precise as this movie is trying to be. 
I think that it had a Road Warrior, whether it has its its problems with story or not, had a clear focus. These this gang wants to take over this this fuel plantation, this fuel plant, and people have to defend your fuel, and Max is going to help them. Here, though, I were about we're, the point we're at with this movie is we are about an hour in, and I don't see any build-up to anything. Even with the first Mad Max, we were waiting for Max to turn mad. Here, I don't see what we're building up to. Max hasn't said, here, let's take over um, Tina Turner's place yet. I mean, he'll get to that. But I feel like we're still going back to bad pacing problems that the first Mad Max had, where it takes us to the hour and 15-minute mark, or in this case, the hour and 30, to get to what's our final action scene. So the difference between this one and the first one is that with the pacing, you're right. In the first one, it seemed like it was dragging because we knew that Mad Max was going to go mad. He was going to get revenge. And that's what we were waiting for the whole movie. But the difference is there was nothing really happening that was building up to that moment until, you know, his family actually finally gets attacked in, you know, the second hour of the movie, and then he finally revenges them. But there's a good 40 minutes in that movie where it's like nothing really yeah, seems to be agree. building towards that. The difference here, the difference in um, Beyond Thunderdome is that every um, story element and every piece that of the puzzle that we are getting put together is building this picture and this idea in your head of how backwards this society is, how the, the children um, have are the main victims here because they have lost, an in, they have no memory of the other society and all they have is passed down through stories, which again is highlighting the importance mm-hmm. of stories and the power of storytelling. And it's also highlighting how these these kids are holding on to mm-hmm. these stories because they yeah. have no hope and that's their only belief. So yeah, like you said, when Max when Max says, you know, I'm not the captain or whatever, and they're like, mm-hmm. well, he's just testing us. Well, obviously they're going to say that because they are so desperate to believe him and to believe that they have some kind of chance. And that belief is what convinces Max to help them because originally he just really wants to kind of use their the little bit of resources that they've gathered to survive with them in that yeah. place. But okay, he has so a change of heart when he sees how um, desperate they really are, and that's what it's building towards, and that's why the final action scene has something behind it. Whereas in Mad Max, it seemed kind of rough. Yeah, we'll, and we'll get end. to that final action scene later. But before we do, there's a few more elements on the tribe that uh, I wanted to touch on, and uh, then we'll get to that final action scene after the break. All right, we're back. Um, so uh, there was a few more elements on the tribe that I wanted to discuss. So they discover this plane because Max threw his uh, the captain's hat, and this bird flew somewhere, and the uh, and the tribe people rushed over to it. What I don't? How did they discover?
over this plane? Or do they already know what about? I got, I have to admit, I checked out in, in so many tribe scenes. So I didn't quite get um, this entire plane part. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if they already knew the plane was there. That's kind of the sense that I got from it originally. That's what I okay. thought it was. Um, I can see how you might have thought that it was just chance that they found it, though. But I don't think it's really a problem either way. Okay. Is this Captain Walker's plane? Yeah, I think if they know that it's there, that's kind of the assumption. Okay. it's Okay, so then... The pretty much two genders of this tribe like split up, um, and why Max wants to have them stay. What are the women wanting to do? They're wanting to leave to do what? So, um, like they said earlier, the adults set out to find one of these cities. I forget what they call them, you know, with their strange dialect. But yeah. basically what half the tribe wants to do. I didn't notice that it was all the women. Is that, is that actually, was that what was going on or going down? Uh, that's how it looked to me. The lead woman takes quite a few of the women with her. Well, yeah, I knew the leader was a woman, but I wasn't sure that all her followers were. Anyway. Um, yeah, um, go ahead. Um, so, yeah, they're just going after, they're trying to find a city. Because they they have more of a chance of surviving there. So that's what they're looking for. But Max is, you know, Max has more knowledge of the outside world. And he's saying, you're not going to find any cities. You got to stay here with what you got, you know? Yeah. uh, Max really feels like a haunt. Ford. I think he's like, there's nothing out there. We just need to. That's kind of how I felt like that. Yeah. Well, it also echoes uh, Fury Road a little bit, how. Furiosa wants to go across the salt and find, you know, the green place or whatever. I mean, obviously, that it's not the green place because they already know that that's not anymore. Oh, for another time! Patrick didn't spoil it yet. <laughs> okay. But, um, and Max is saying, no, like, you know what you've got. You've got, you know, the Citadel. Let's go back and make a run for the Citadel because it's more concrete. Yeah, I agree. Um, So... They split up, and we'll get to that city part later, but uh, um, the women still go out. They, the whole pe- All the people go out because kid fell in um, uh, the, the quicksand, which was set up. I'll give the writers credit to that, that yeah, this, was, this was set up. Yeah. Um, so pretty much Max pulled him out, blah, 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 and he's like... And Max just now realizes that they can go back to um, uh, the blah, 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 whatever it's called. Um, what's it called? The border Barter town. Barton town. Barter yeah. town. The Barter town. Okay. Um, and they can get the train to go there. No. So um, so basically, all the the or the girl and all the people that she took with her. They all fall into the sand trap, uh-huh. and Max and just the two kids, or the three kids that he takes with him as like a little squad to find them and bring them back. Uh-huh. They grab the one person that is still um, that is still above ground in the sand trap. They grab him, they pull him out, and all of the people that had left were all linked up arm in arm or grabbing whatever pieces of clothing they could that were connected to another person. 
And so they pull them all out in a great chain, which is just kind of a, you know, a nod to the idea that they, they have to stick together as a group, you know, because that was part of the conflict earlier is that them splitting up weakens both groups. Yes. So, this is just a, so that just kind of comes around full circle when they pull everyone out and they're only able to save everyone because they were all sticking together. And so then they're back and joined up solidly as possible. They go to Barter Town. They free all the slaves or whatever with the help of some of the slaves who are ready to revolt. And yeah. then they take the train out of Barter Town. And we finally get a car. Now, I still have a problem. These cars don't look that special. I mean, they pretty much look like dune buggies. Yeah, they look like dune buggies, but that's kind of like a, that was a new element that we hadn't really seen much of before. In the past, they've all been kind of normal cars. And in Fury Road, it's like a combination, like as far as design-wise. There's like mm-hmm. lots of dune buggies, and they're kind of like a, an amalgamation of the two. So I thought it was interesting yeah. because it does seem like Fury Road has the most, like all the best elements of the last three, which I don't want to, again, get too far into it, but it has like some of the best design elements of all three movies combined into one. So I thought this was a, a interesting to see another piece of that puzzle fall. Yeah, and it really feels echoing to um, Mad Max The Road Warrior um, you talked about the, there were some dune buggies in that last chase in Road Warrior, and I feel like this final action um, fight really uh, feels a lot like Road Warrior. But um, Patrick, what did you think of this final action scene? Well, I definitely think that there isn't very much action here. Like the the methods have developed a little yeah. bit since Road Warrior. But I think the filmmakers definitely realized that there hasn't been that much development in technology. Mm-hmm. So they aren't really doing anything new with the action since Road Warrior. And I think that might be part of why they decided to go more in-depth on a story and try to get that side of it more solidly nailed down. Because then the action, while it's kind of a rehash of the action from Road Warrior, it's not as constant as the action from Road Warrior, and it has a little bit more um, depth and heart behind it, and you care a little bit more about them surviving. I'm, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess so. Um, I didn't really care a ton for this opening action scene. I think that this is final action scene. I feel like, I mean, this is really the, uh, well, I, I won't say it's the only action scene we've got, but it's the only car chase we've got. And I feel like yeah. the, it feels really limited because this is a train that we're on and it's on this track and it can't really do a whole lot. But I think it, it gives a nice touch of sort of limitation um, to what's going on. Um, but uh, this didn't do a ton for me. I'm not scared of Tina Turner. I don't think that she's going to damage any of these characters. Do any of them even die? Uh, I'm sure some cars crash and some people are killed inside them, but there's there's no characters really that they've built up any reason for them to for it to be satisfying for them to die. What about the um the I meant the good guys the 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 tribe people and Max. Yeah, I don't think they do. I think most of them survive. It'd be kind of dark if a bunch of kids died. 
Yeah, but they wrote they once again. I'm gonna blame um, the PG-13 rating for this final action scene because, like you mentioned, they wouldn't kill any kid. They kill a baby in the first Mad Max movie. I don't feel like George Miller necessarily has a set of boundaries unless he's putting this PG-13 rating. Yeah, but I mean that's that was a different story they were trying to tell. It was a revenge story. You had to get to keep the you know, the audience riled up against these villains because you know the villains weren't really menacing enough to do that on their own. But here, it's not really the focus. Like it doesn't. It's not necessary. Yeah, but then I feel like the solution is to just don't bring kids. Why do we have to have kids team up with Max? Because I, he's talking about you know the generations. He wants people to. He wants people to see that they, we need to fix society, not just for ourselves, but for the future kids that are coming, the generations you know after us. It's it's not just about the people that are involved now. I still feel like with a final action scene, we should not have, in a Mad Max film, kids limiting the amount of action we can have in this movie. Because I feel like that's what we do. This movie isn't going to push any of the boundaries. Like you mentioned, and I'm going to agree with you, between 1980-whatever-ish, uh, and um, nineteen one, I think nineteen eighty one and nineteen eighty five. Yeah, you're right. 1985. But in between nineteen eighty one and nineteen eighty five, there has not been a huge jump in special effects. While in between Mad Max and Mad Max two, there was six years. Uh, I mean, uh, actually, no, there was two years. I don't know, but whatever had been going on in cinema, there hadn't been a huge jump. But, uh, well, the difference between Mad Max 1 and Mad Max 2 was mostly the budget. That's why it was a lot better. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, it wasn't the technology uh, advancing. Yeah, you're right. I forgot about that budget. Um, so I have a question. So are we supposed to just automatically forgive um, the master? Because I don't feel like he ever necessarily redeems himself, but, I mean, they work their tails off to protect him. Is there a specific reason why they they bring him along? Well, the master without blaster is really exposed. Mm-hmm. He's he doesn't have any power. He's automatically cast out among the the underdogs. Right. So, yeah, I think that is the reason why I mean, he doesn't really do anything that awful in the past like yeah, you know, the society was keeping some slaves and yeah, he was over them, which is awful. But that was kind of what was that wasn't really his fault. And he was just trying to survive the best he could. Um, so I don't know. I don't I don't think he has that much to redeem himself from, really. But yeah. OK, Um yeah, I feel like he really is like quite a hindrance, but um, yeah, I, I get your point. Um, so we have this final action scene. Then we go to Bruce Spence. I'm not gonna. I don't really remember his name in this movie. Um, but Jeremiah. we okay, yeah. Or Jebediah. Sorry, Jebediah. 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 All right, thanks. Um, but uh, they fly his helicopter, and still haven't connected. This is not. The guy wrote Captain. When he looks at when with Mel Gibson's acting, I thought when he looked at um, 
the um the at Jebediah in that room that uh, he what he like almost I thought there was like a twinkle in Gibson's eye like I thought he was smiling maybe I just misread it but I felt like he recognized that it was the gyro captain and so he's like you have a plane I'm like yeah because he he flew the plane with him so I still have not connected that Jebediah is um the character in this movie and not the gyro captain yeah I think it's mostly just um, their lack of recognition of each other. I think that's the, the only really clue. Yeah, yeah well, but when Bruce Spence really gets its moment, it's a breath of fresh air, to be honest. Like, I really feel like Gibson is having to play down with these kids. Here, Bruce Spence is just, I think he's a lot of fun flying the cat. Just with his facial expressions, really, he doesn't say a whole lot, but just with his facial expressions. Is this his son that he's with? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, we, he pretty much they get away, and Max sacrifices himself, I guess, by, uh, driving the truck, um, right into, what is it, um, the, just the field area, and I will give him, I will give them this, the explosion was very good when he crashed into them, and I think we got another explosion earlier, um, so, when they do the explosions, they're pretty good. I still feel like the, this final action scene really blows. Yeah, it's not anything special. Yeah. So he escapes, and uh, Tina Turner is uh, standing above um, Max, and she pauses, and she's like, we really are alike, something like that. She compares them, like, saying they're the same. I did not get that at all. Wait, sorry, say that again. Um, so when she's above Max, she pauses and like lets him go and she says a line like you and I are a lot alike or whatever. Yeah. What did that mean? I did not get that at all. Like I real like I thought it was out of character. Like I felt like if I felt like um with what we we had seen from Tina Turner's character, she was the type of character who felt like she needed to be uh, just the most powerful above everybody else. Yeah. But, so I didn't quite get why she let go since Max had really rivaled her greatly in the amount of power. Well, I think she just saw in him a fellow survivor and a fellow leader, which is, you know, he is a survivor. He survives throughout the entire series. And he's a yeah. leader. Whenever he runs into a group of people, he often is able to take charge and that's where she mm. sees herself as. And again, you know, the villain roles here aren't as um, purely evil as in some of the other ones. Yeah. Um, so um, she lets him go and we go back to this narration bit and uh, they're talking about never lose sight. Blah, blah, blah. And they find a city. Now, I have a bit of a problem with there being a city. I really feel like if there is, then people would have found it by now. I do not get that people, that this that the city would have been uninhabited until these tribal dudes find them. Well, it's abandoned. I mean. But why is it abandoned? Wouldn't people, people have been looking for this? There might and be I feel like people there. There were already people there before. I said there might be. 
There might be. Okay. But then why were the lights not on? Isn't one of the key things that the lights had never been turned on and they turned them on? I I guess. I don't know. I didn't really think that that was really important. Okay. I, I was just really confused because I thought that there was some sort of atomic explosion. I did not expect for um, cities to still be standing. I thought that um, they would all decimate it. You know, when you talk about the green place later, when when you get to Fury Road, uh, and I kind of bought that there'd be some patches of green still left, but uh, I, I still did not quite get that. But maybe that's just me. I have to admit, I, I'm tired uh, after this bit. I mean, I have lost quite a bit of patience with the movie. I'm checking my watch. I'm ready for it to be over. Yeah, I understand. I think that the well, you know, if we're gonna defend it and say that it's reasonable, there's not really any uh solid explanation of what the fallout was. And even if there were yeah. some atomic bombs, you know, as part of that, there would mm-hmm. still be um some cities that probably didn't get directly hit and just were wiped out by the fallout or what have you, the radiation, you know, which they hint at at the very beginning of the movie. This guy tries to sell Max water and then he checks it for radiation and it's off the charts. So that is affecting, um, you know, this city somehow. I'm not really sure why no one else has found it, but, you know, it's a crazy world. Yeah. All right. Well, that's pretty much the ending. Still feel like Max should have gotten his car back and rode down the road. I still miss that shot. The one thing that I think the first Mad Max has above these cars, the best thing, is that we close off with that look in Max's eye and that um, just panning of the road. I mean, that's one of my favorite shots of this franchise. I mean, even when we get to Fury Road, which is full of awesome shots. Um that still is just so iconic to me. I can't believe that we it's been two movies where we've missed that. I really miss it. Yeah, <laughs> I, it's a pretty good shot. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we close off. We we don't close off on Max. I mean, we close off with those tribal people. But uh, yeah, anyway, let's get down to it. Um, Patrick, do you recommend um, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome? Um, I recommend it over the first one, but I would also give the same disclaimer as I gave on the first one, which is it's not as Mad Max as you would think it is or would you expect. So don't expect as much action, but definitely expect uh, if you pay attention, you know, there's ideas being presented here that are entertaining, to say the least. All right. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to mention about Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome that we didn't get to? Um, I don't think so. I think we covered it. All right. Um, as for me, uh, look, when we reached the tribe and we were going through this stuff, I mean, I was just confounded. This movie had been really weird. Uh, for this, and you were talking about when you're going into a Mad Max movie, this isn't really what you'd be expecting, and I'm really going to have to agree with you on that one, because this 
felt nothing like a Mad Max movie. I'm going to have to go on a strong not recommend because if this was a movie part of a different franchise or something like that, I might be able to go with a weak recommend. But as a Mad Max movie, this is some crap. Like, I I just, it, it is for me. I mean, say what you will about the first Mad Max. I would take that opening car chase over any action scene we get in this Mad Max movie. I understand that they thought that um, there hadn't been a huge jump in technology or there wasn't anything new they could do, but I think that the audience still finds car chases highly entertaining. I mean, look at the Fast and Furious franchise that continues to really just do something more ridiculous over and over again, but it's still the same Fast and Furious element, and those movies make billions of dollars. I mean... Yeah, I think I'd take Beyond Thunderdome over a Fast and Furious movie. And I, I have not seen any of the Fast and Furious movies. Uh, maybe we'll come back to that if we do that for a future retrospective. But as for this, I mean, I really was disappointed. I had heard that this was one of the... This had been uh, the weakest of the uh, Mad Max movies. I understand that that's um, not true for you, Patrick. You said you recommended it over the first one. I'd still prefer the first one. I'm, uh, it, as far as uh, maybe riding and woven goes, this movie might be better. I mean, I'm, but that isn't what I was looking for in a Mad Max movie. This movie does not have the iconic car, even though it was blown up. We're going to see it uh, next week with Mad Max Fury Road, maybe not for too long, but it's in the movie. And I, I'm i still holding on to it. It might have been in that workshop. I'm not sure. But um, this movie was a huge disappointment, and I'm going to blame um, the studio executives and the stinking PG-13 rating. I do not understand why they thought they needed to do this. For one thing, the main audience for the Mad Max movies isn't going to want a PG-13 rating. And also, I think that... um, excuse me, that the kids that might be going to see this movie are not going to have a special connection with the previous two installments. So they're not going to really be able to care about this franchise. I don't, I'm honestly a little confused on the audience for this movie because I understand that there probably is one. I just can't think of it, but I'm honestly just... I liked it. Yeah, I know. But what would you say the main audience for this movie is? Like the main demographic. Uh, me? Yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll give you that. I, I guess this movie just really confused me. A PG-13 rating has never seemed like the smart way to go for a Mad Max movie. I mean, these movies have been gory. Isn't this the only one that's PG-13? Yeah, all the other ones have been R. Uh, this is the first PG-13 rating one, and I think it's really, in the end, what just condemns this movie. Because, I mean, in the last two... I mean, it, there wasn't a ton in the first Mad Max because there was those, there was a cheap budget, but we had that gore, and there was even some sexual stuff in there that I think really just made this world. I don't feel like we're even in the same world as we were last time or any of the other times. I feel like this is a less crazy world. I feel like the writer that was brought in doesn't understand 
um, how this world works. Just because you laugh doesn't mean you're insane. I mean, you uh, you did the uh, Bad Max, uh, the first Bad Max, because there people are just laughing in there. Um, and I will agree with you. Sometimes they just think if you laugh, that means you're insane. That's not true. Um, but this movie also. I mean, Tina Turner does not give a very good performance, honestly, in this movie. Um, I know that she's a popular singer. I cannot think of a singer besides Justin Timberlake because of the social network that um, gave a good performance um, as a transitioning to an actor. I think Justin Timberlake is really good in the social network. Tina Turner is not good in Bad Max Beyond Thunderdome. This is a strong recommend. I think this can be easily skipped over. In the grand scheme of things, I pity Gibson. I pity Miller. They had to make this monstrosity. I actually just learned the director and writer who had been, who is probably my biggest problem with this movie. This, I did not know this movie had two directors. It's got George Miller and George Oglivier. Oglivier. I don't know his name. But George Oglivier, if you are listening to this movie... I despise you. I cannot believe that you ruined this movie. Like, and also the studio executives as well. I'm very disappointed. I mean, I don't want to just really. I can't disappointed. I was. I feel like even this is a light PG thirteen movie. I mentioned it felt PG sometimes, and I still like the fact that it takes us about an hour and fifteen minutes. Or not even an hour and thirty minutes to get to our car chase to for someone to even drive a car. That's a mistake. I think these Mad Max movies have been known for giving us some of the best car chases of all time, and this is just a really disappointing. Strong recommend. Skip over this one. Go to Fury Road. We'll get to that later. But I, I'm just gonna for future um, just a teaser into our conversation on Fury Road. I mean, that's a movie I absolutely love. It has some of the best effects ever. It's one of my favorite action movies. Uh, I'll, I can't wait to really praise that movie. Uh, but this was a huge disappointment. Once again, George Miller, Mel Gibson, I'm sorry. This was Mel Gibson's last movie. And I think that this, at the end of the credits, this movie um, says, uh, in honor of the writer that died, I do not remember his name, um, but I really feel sorry for that guy. Terry Hayes. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> sorry, but uh, I really deserve that guy because this is not the movie I would want to have remembered as me. And for Mel Gibson, the- well, I mean, the only other writer other than Terry Hayes is George Miller. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the directors is George Miller. George Miller is also a producer on the project, so he is one of the executives that you're talking about. I still feel like that. This, it was the main studio. Kennedy Miller Productions wanted to have a PG-13 movie because I do not picture George Miller saying, guys, what if we did a PG-13 Mad Max movie aimed at a younger demographic? That was someone else. I don't know who it was, but it was a terrible decision. This movie just frustrates well, he, me. Yeah. I mean, the fact remains that if he knew it was going to be PG-13, he didn't have to write it, direct it, and produce it once he knew that. And I get that. I think that at this point, that Miller needed to have a producer's credit. This cause, I mean, this is still Miller's baby. I feel like he, some of the stuff was taken away from him. But I don't think that he chose the PG-13 rating. Uh, but I still think that this is Miller's vision, and the studio 
just had to bring him along because only he can only he really understands this world. Uh, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fully disappoint I'm, I'm not gonna fully disagree with you, Patrick. Uh, I know that we kind of have a butting heads this conversation. I know that you were a little more positive on it than I am, but I think you made some good points. I think some of the writing decisions here are actually pretty good. Um, I once again I'm I am going to point out a, a major flaw I have with this franchise. That's Max. I mean, Max feels the most sane person in this movie. I don't get why he's called Mad Max. He doesn't feel mad in this movie, and he didn't really feel mad in the last one. Um, so I'm not sure exactly why he's just earned this title as Mad Max because he doesn't feel that in, that that crazy to me. Um, but um, yeah, that that's pretty much all I have to say. But you made some good points, Patrick. I I think you really did. I can see um where you would agree uh or agree with some decisions that this movie made. Uh, so don't think that I completely disagree with you. Um, so strongly recommend, but for the people that do like this movie, that's totally fine. I, I get it. But this movie just confounds me. Yeah, I understand. Um, so I guess that, that, that wraps up our discussion of Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Um, so I did actually, um, accomplish one of the five movies I'd wanted to watch. So I do want to replace one of those five with, um, uh, one of the Kubrick movies. I'm not sure which one it's going to be, uh, but Kubrick is a director that interests me so much. I think he does a lot of uh, daring things. Just did film 2001 and Dr. Strangelove, um, both really just push the boundaries in storytelling. So I will be seeing a Kubrick movie soon, definitely. Awesome. Um, is there any movie that you'd want to mention or are you still have your five movies that you're wanting to see, uh, Patrick? Um, yeah, I think I'm sticking with my five-star club that I'm trying to get to. All right. All right. I, I know we were butting heads this conversation, but I actually feel like this is one of our, our best conversations. I feel like we both made some pretty good points. I hope you saw my side. I think I saw yours, too. And I hope our audience understood both of our sides. Yeah. Um, so we'll be back with uh, Mad Max Fury Road. I cannot wait. I'm definitely excited for that. I know, Patrick, you and I are both going to be watching in the um, black and chrome version. I'll be interested in seeing that. Uh, I'm honestly not that... I'm interested in it, but I'm not excited because I feel like one of the best things Mad Max has going for it is its color. But uh, then again, I don't know. We'll see when we get there. I think we'll definitely be bringing in that point of view. Yeah, dude. I'm super excited about the black and chrome. Yeah, okay. Uh, so we will be, um, Patrick. Where can people find you um, if they want to hear more about you? You can find me at Patrick O'Segan on Letterbox. One word, uh, Patrick O S I G I A N. The P and the O are capitalized. I actually got that wrong. <laughs> so yeah. Um, as for me, you can find me over at my blog, the com. I actually just released a post on um. Uh, the Charlie Theron solo movie that won't star Charlie Theron or the Imperi- Imperator Furiosa spinoff movie um, that will not star Charlie Theron. I um, did an article on some of my thoughts on that. I also added a section on my top 30 movies of all time, so you can find that there as well. Um, you can also find me at Letterboxd. At, uh, uh, it's two words. Um, it's Noah Newcomb. Uh, it's capital N-O-A-H and then capital N-E-W-C-O-M-B. 
Uh, Patrick, thank you once again so much for joining me. I cannot wait to have that conversation on Fury Road. Um, and as for if you've enjoyed this episode, go listen to some of our other episodes. Uh, we uh, had a No Country for All Men review that Patrick and I both did. Um, Patrick and I also did our top 30 movies of the decade. Uh, we're also still working on our Batman retrospective, but you can go listen to my Batman Mask of the Phantasm review and Sam and I's Batman 1989 review and Batman Returns review. Uh, I know, Patrick, you'll be jumping in when we do uh, Catwoman, so that'll be exciting. Um, and yeah, so go, go listen to some of the, those other episodes. And uh, thank you so much for listening. Patrick, thank you so much again for joining me. This has been episode 17 of the Movie Maniacs podcast. <laughs>